This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Mark McDonald, it's so weird, but it's like the hundredth time I'm welcoming you to the trenches. <laughs> I hope it doesn't feel that way for the audience. Well, um, well, I also hope not. I have a suspicion, though, based on the mails that I get, that it's quite the opposite. It seems like every time I say something that I believe is going to get me banned from the Internet and have you lose your entire audience disgusted and appalled at the immoral, inhumane and cruel comments I make, you wind up gaining followers. So I think every time I have a self-censoring thought that maybe I probably shouldn't really say yes. this, it's going to really upset people, I should actually say it. Well, when you and I chatted yesterday uh, on TNT, we were talking about a manliness and crocodile dundee. Both of us... I've got our I've got our caps on. We're both unshaven. <laughs> the only thing that's the only thing that's different is that I've got a whiskey. That's true. It's too early for me because I actually have to go to a, a lunch meeting with my financial advisor in a couple hours, and I, I don't want to be drunk because he'll probably cheat me. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm waiting until the evening to pull out the hard liquor. I just got two bottles delivered actually from a distillery in Chicago called Rhein Hall which is a fruit brandy distillery in the German fashion. And I, I actually special ordered them from a local store because I fell in love with these um, fruit brandies when I was in Bosnia, in Sarajevo and Tuzla, and then ultimately Kosovo, Macedonia. They're unbelievable. They're, they're um, 80 proof, 40% alcohol, clear, wow. distilled. And they have the most pure essence of the fruit, especially the pear version that I've ever seen. You, you can't get them from any other country. Albanians and Serbians try to sort of get this sickly sweet schnapps version which tastes awful like like cough syrup but this is amazing stuff they're unbelievable it's like 200 pounds of fruit i don't know how much that is in the uh, imperial system by the way but 200 <laughs> we were just talking about that <laughs> metric rather uh, 200 pounds of fruit how many metric tons that is to get one bottle of this stuff it's it reminds me of that book perfume that was turned into a movie with dustin hoffman years ago about the mm. Uh, murder of uh, women that he would kill and then uh, place them in fat, skin them, and then suck out all of their essence and build a perfume bottle in order to uh, uh, seduce the world into doing his bidding. It's a very interesting book. But this this fruit kind of reminds me of, of that core essence of the fruit, even more than eating a pear. You, you smell and taste the pear in it. So I just got two bottles of it delivered yesterday. And before I, I finish my, my day, I'm going to end up having another couple of shots. But, but that's not yet because it's still early here in Los Angeles. Uh, and, and then after you've had that shot, you, you will frequent your local gentleman's club. Well, I, I, then I can bring up my, myself up the courage to show my face at, uh, at Skin down the street <laughs> and pull out my cigars and bring the ladies over for the lap dances. It's a, it's a funny place because I actually drive past it every single day and there's always the same man sitting out front. Uh, he's a portly man. That's, that's, you know, an understatement. Sitting in a chair uh, with his phone. That's all he does. Uh, and I assume that he, he prevents riffraff from coming in. And every now and then you see a couple of the, the staff coming in and out. And you always know they're the staff because they're wearing, you know, 12-inch platform heels and glitter and all kinds of stuff. It's a very odd thing to have at the edge of an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Just 
for those who are wondering, uh, we are talking about a gentleman's club where you smoke cigars, uh, you uh, you drink whiskey, and you talk about fast cars. Of course, there's there's nothing perverse about it at all. <laughs> yeah, those drinks that you got, though, you, you did you say you got them in the Balkans? Is that because that's where you were recently? Yeah, I did actually. I actually I brought a couple of bottles back with me from uh, Pristina, Kosovo. And I can't find them, you know, here in the mm. U.S. at all. But there is this uh, this distillery in Chicago that makes something very similar, which I, I really love. Out of uh, apples, they also have one out of apricots and plums and and cherries. But the the one I really like is made out of pears. And I first tried it in Sarajevo, which is the capital of Bosnia, and it was amazing. Uh, I, I actually now prefer it to uh, to whiskey and bourbon. There's there's just something. Um, very soothing and warming about it, especially after you have a meal um, on, on a cold night that mm. uh, brings you to a, sort of the benefits that you get from other forms of alcohol, but without the calories and the headaches and uh, and the hangovers in the morning. Okay, but you you ruined my segue. I was trying to segue into your trip, not not back into the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> it was just this, like the highlight of that trip. It was one of the best things that I found, and I know that you are a connoisseur of alcohol as well. Yes. So I thought that you would appreciate that. Yes. The trip that I the, the trip that I made I, I made twice actually. I, I came back to the U.S. then went back a second time, and I'm trying to plan a third trip this time, perhaps to Croatia, which is a place I haven't been. And the main reason for it is that all of those Balkans republics, I believe there's seven technically, although there's really only six plus a little one that's kind of like Liechtenstein that nobody pays attention to. But there's seven technically, and they're all out of the EU. So they're not under the thumb of Brussels. And the people there are very uh, disobedient, very non-compliant, very non-fearful. And I'm, I'm really making a generalization because there are certain areas in Macedonia that just fell prey to the same nonsense as bad as some of the uh, the worst parts of Australia did. But largely speaking, the people there are just giving their finger at any overlord dictates whatsoever, whether they're coming from Brussels or whether they're coming from their own president, because they've been screwed for so long, for so many decades, so many wars, so many backstabbing, so many murders, deaths, uh, rapes, burnings, lootings. I mean, they, they really have an awful history. And I don't mean from 200 years ago, I mean from the last 20 years. So these people are such a wonderful model for the pussified Westerners who have become completely brainwashed. You know, the men have lost their balls and the women have gone hysterical and they're all just sitting around waiting to be told, yes, daddy, give me one more, what should I do by their local overlords and their and their national government. And if if, if it comes to that, they're international rulers, you know, like uh, like Klaus Schwab. And if, if we can, as Westerners, try to derive a little bit more stamina and a little bit more strength and a little bit more courage from their example, from the example of the people in the Balkans, I think we could really strengthen our our fight uh, in this war. Uh, I believe it is a war. I mean, we really are in a, a, a practical war. And I've started to say recently, I really think there's there's something energetic and perhaps even supraphysical about this, almost on a, diabol a diabolical level in this battle, this war that we have right now, which is international, to preserve our humanity. This is not a political war. I mean, it, it might appear that way, you know, that's sort of the players on the board are, are political, but I think there's something really very profound going on right now that, that goes beyond, um, it goes beyond politics and it goes beyond even basic psychology. I just published my Substack for this week, uh, earlier this morning, and I wrote about what I believe to be 
a, a unexplainable, scientifically unexplainable phenomenon that has grown, uh, erupted really, in America and also in other Western countries, which is anti-human. It is, it is really a perverse, sadistic, taking pleasure in harming and destroying people and society for no other reason than the destruction, not for theft, not for the pleasure of rape, not for uh, being able to jump on top of a police car and say, you know, I beat the, I beat the, the man, which is evil, but it is rational. It is, it is understandable. I can understand why someone robs a store because mm-hmm. they want to get something. I get it. But why do you as a woman, as a female doctor, want to take two and three-year-old children on gender journeys and encourage them to wear girls' clothes if they're boys and to change their pronouns and to have, if they're healthy young girls, have their breasts cut off Mm. or if they're young boys, tuck their penises between their legs with surgical tape and then make them walk like they have vaginas and then ultimately have a vaginoplasty, have their penises removed. Why would you want to initiate chemical castration on 12 and 14 year olds because they seem to enjoy dressing up in their mother's clothing or wearing pants if they're girls? Why would you do that? What what gain and benefit is that to you and, and for you? I don't have an answer to that question rationally or psychologically or monetarily or politically. The only answer I have is that it's evil and it's almost a form of possession. There's something very, very sick and demonic that has taken over our society today. And I, I think we ignore it at our peril. Yeah, you said recently to me that, um, well, you've, this is what your book is based on, that people have become addicted to fear. And I mean, I guess there's a whole range of possible reasons why that is. But at, at the most basic level, why do you think people become addicted to fear? Well, this is an important uh, component to what I just said. It's a necessary component, kind of like oil is necessary to 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 create a bearing that moves and a wheel to turn. I, I said a couple years ago, initially, when I announced this mass delusional psychosis that was taking over our world, this was in, I think, August of 2020, I was the first person to use this term, mass delusional psychosis. It was later picked up a couple years later by Robert Malone and then um, blasted over you know, all of the podcast sphere through the Joe Rogan program with a kind of uh, phrase of mass formation psychosis, which is just sort of redundant. I think mass delusional psychosis is, is more accurate, and it describes this sudden universal takeover of rationality by fear. Now, why is this important? I think it's critical, actually. It's critical from an individual point of view, from a clinical point of view, since I'm a psychiatrist, because it represents a mental illness. It is essentially like an obsessive compulsive disorder, or as I describe in my my recent book that came out last week, Freedom from Fear, a form of addiction. And an addiction is something that you can't stop, and you use it as a way to alleviate depression, anxiety, stress. Addiction is a way of escaping from a problem rather than facing it. It's a developmental arrest. And this is the reason why addictions are so problematic. This is the reason why drug addiction is such a problem in youth. Well, we should just legalize cocaine and marijuana and alcohol and everything, nicotine, tobacco, all of it, because people should be free to choose. Well, the problem with that argument on one level is that when you develop an addiction, which young people always do if they start taking drugs, if they have any genetic predisposition to it, is that they get frozen. They don't, they don't develop. 
They don't become adults. They don't become mature. They don't develop courage, risk-taking. They're not able to manage their personal responsibilities, which for men, of course, is work, being a husband, being a father, protecting your family. For a woman, it's growing a sense of emotional resonance and caretaking and sustenance and sustaining others and being able to follow the lead of a good man and a husband and maintain a household, become a mother to nurture. Those things don't happen unless you become mature, unless you become an adult. So if you have fear, which is then an addiction, which I think it's what it's really become right now in the United States and the rest of the world, largely speaking in the West, when that happens, guess what that leads to? It leads to an inability of the individual and the society to make rational, informed decisions for themselves and their community and their family, which leads them, just like a, a weakness in dry rot in wood, to infection, to being taken over by parasites, to seeing the structure completely collapse from the inside out. That is what's happening to our society today because of fear. Americans, and I speak about Americans a lot because I am one, I live in this country, I know it better than any other country in the world. Americans in particular have become so terrified, so obsessed with fear, with safety, that their brains have become taken over by irrational, destructive, and now I would say ultimately evil forces that they then allow to harm them, to harm their own children, their own husbands, their own spouses, to destroy their churches, their synagogues, their civic organizations, to actually invade the bodies of their, of their babies. They are allowing this to happen. The only reason I can assume from the non-evil component, the victims, the mass majority of the population that are just brainwashed is that they are still so scared that they cannot think properly and they cannot reason, they cannot even use common sense. And if you can't use common sense, you will fall prey to any, any form of parasite, of takeover, of evil. That is what I think is going on. That is why I think this fear addiction is so important. It's not just an intellectual idea. It is at the core of our future as people and as humans. Um, I think an extension of my question, though, is... If, if you think of soldiers, um, if they were to be fearful, they would lose. Okay, so it's not an optimal position to have. I'm trying to think, Mark, why then are so many millions of people adopting this position, which is essentially a losing position? It doesn't seem op optimal. Well, it is ultimately. Think about what feminism said to women for years and years, decades and decades, and they're still saying, and you still hear women repeating this, we need to be strong, we need to be independent, we need to teach men what, what their place is. We need to put them in their place, we need to win, we need to succeed. It sounds like, if you just sort of listen to it, maybe while you're having a drink and watching a soccer game, yeah, it sounds good, that sounds reasonable. Strong women, yeah, they wanna yeah, put men in their place, yeah, men are, you know, they're predators, they're, they're all rapists, yeah, that sounds good, let's, let's give them that. But it's a losing proposition, because every woman who has quote unquote won has wound up being depressed, isolated, and alone. The women in their 40s and 50s now that have won at the top of the corporate ladder, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of positions of power and influence, they are childless, they are largely unmarried or divorced, they are alone, they are depressed, they are unhappy. So adopting a losing position is actually not that uncommon. And adopting a losing position vis-a-vis -vis strength, such as, I want to be and will express weakness. I'm a soldier, but I will, I will go on a vegan diet and board the Harvey Milk battle cruiser. And then I will put a rainbow flag pin 
on my uniform and I will go to find diplomatic solutions with the enemy, those people truly believe to some degree, not all of them, but the, certainly the leadership does, that this is actually a more evolved and better position than eating meat, building up your muscles, sending the women home, get rid of the flight pregnancy suits, put real men in cockpits, men with, with balls, and have them bomb the hell out of the enemy until they give in, submit, and cower and say, please, please, don't kill us anymore. We will give in. We, we, we're, we're done. That, that used to make sense up until recently. Now suddenly that's somehow um, uh, evil, that's somehow uh, primitive, that's somehow wrong and destructive. But it's not. It's actually the, the, the right way. It's the only way to wage war. The only function of an army is to win. That's it, period, end of mm. story. Well, so this there's be... something, I know, rationally, I know it doesn't make sense, but but people will still adopt it, even though it's a losing position, because they have been so brainwashed and controlled, largely by anxiety and fear, which of course goes through social media to a large extent. I think that's really how people have been culled mm. uh, into the, this position, this losing position so easily. It really has been through media. Well, this is the reason why men make better pilots, because they sit in the cockpit. <laughs> Were you just waiting to pull that one out? <laughs> yeah, I've waited seven years for that joke. <laughs> Hashtag dad joke. I have no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay, but going going back to the serious stuff. Um, wh why do you think, Mark? In your experience, in the Balkans, I mean. You, there were people there that come from a history of fighting for freedom. They know what it is to be fearful. And then you, you, you juxtapose that with the West, that they have everything. How did this happen? Well, I think you just answered your own question. It's, it's when you have everything and you haven't lost anything that you wind up not knowing why it's important to lose, why it's important to risk. You start to accept this perverse or twisted philosophy, which is that if you have everything you need, then the only thing left is to perfect the world. This is a huge mistake. I'm sure everyone that's listening has heard this phrase before, the enemy of the good is the pursuit of the perfect. And the West has been pursuing the perfect now since probably the rise of Lenin, but it's gotten a lot worse in the last 10 or 20 years. And most of it has to do with the attainment of a society which is by leaps and bounds superior in every way to any other human civilization in all of history. One example of this is black Americans. They are more financially successful, they are safer, they are healthier, they are more participatory and more accepted in the United States than in any other country, including their own countries in Africa, in the world today, at any other time in history, including today. And yet there is a large proportion, large component of black Americans, a contingent of them, that believe that they are suffering from white racism, from discrimination, from 
a government that is trying to crush them from police violence, all of which is a lie. It's not, an, it's not a difference of opinion. It is a flat out lie. And it is being perpetrated by, largely speaking, white liberals and some black race hucksters. And they have been doing this for decades, but their voices have gone, grown louder and louder and louder in the last few years. Just as the actual lives of blacks have gotten better and better and better, and actual violence and discrimination and race hatred, et cetera, against blacks has diminished to such a point now that there just isn't enough racism around to find. It's like a supply and a demand problem. The supply of racism is so, so low now, given the demand that we have to just keep looking for more and more cases. In fact, inventing them and mm. creating them to keep people in power and happy. I think that is actually uh, at the heart of the, the, the answer to your question. I think now there is so much prosperity for all people. There, we have so much that we never had before that we have now developed a contingent of people who are looking for a problem and trying to invent one. They have no sense or meaning left in their lives because they are so easily pacified. There's so little threat that they're actually going and creating problems for themselves and then trying to find a solution which leads to destruction. It's perpetual victimhood mentality, isn't it? Well, it is. Uh, victim is a sense of identity for a lot of people in the US. If you don't have anything to do, if you don't have any sense of purpose, if you are a single woman with children that are being paid for by the government to eat and go to school and, and go to the doctor and get their clothing purchased, and there's no man in your life, and you are a man who can't find a date because you watch porn all day long on your phone and you don't know how to speak to women because you're told that if you actually go up and say, hi, you look really hot today, can I buy you a coffee, that you're going to be arrested for attempted rape. If, if your life doesn't have a sense of, of focus, whether you're a man or a woman, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to find something to complain about. You're going to find some reason that will explain externally why you feel internally so unsuccessful, depressed, mm -hmm. lonely, isolated, ostracized, etc. You can't actually say, it's a problem within me. I need to work on something that I need to change to actually become instrumental in the larger world. No, you're going to say, you know what? I think the problem is that racist neighbor that I have. I think the problem is that the government hasn't really made amends for all the unemployment that I've had for the last four or five years. That's why I need a $20,000 student loan and Pell Grant refund and loan abatement. It's not because I got a degree in feminist basket weaving studies and I can't get an employment. No, 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 that's not the reason. The reason is that society doesn't value me enough. My narcissism has, has, has raised and grown to such a level that I don't even see where it is that I need to improve. So how do you correct that? Well, you just go and get something from the outside that reaffirms your victim mentality. And then the whole victim pandemic spreads and pretty soon, you know, every other person in the US is a victim. Every other person is uh, is a taker waiting for the, the, the dwindling number of makers to turn their lives around. Just like a little baby in a diaper lying in his pool of shit and piss uh, I didn't do that, but somebody's mm -hmm. better going to fix it for me. And of course, mommy comes by and cleans the diaper and then he's all well again and he feels really good. But what happens when the diaper doesn't get changed? Then he starts crying and wailing yeah. and oh, woe is me. That's totally fine for a baby. 
but that's not the way adults should be operating. And that's the way we are operating as adults today. Uh, I was saying to you um, the other day uh, that it seems to me that there is a, a very tight correlation between having core values or uh, foundational principles on which you base your life and having less fear. Oh yes, absolutely. This is one of the problems now today with the movement, the war against religion by the secular religiosity-minded folks. All the people that are destroying our values, which of course the foundation of Western values is the Bible, whether you believe in God or not is not important, but you have to believe in the founding principles and values and teachings and morality of that book which is how the United States was formed. And the United States is, is based, the politics and our law, our legal judicial system is based on the Ten Commandments. It's based on moral code. And all of the people that are opposed to religion are also opposed to intrinsic absolute values. Their goal is to remove all values and to replace them with obeisance to a state. That is really their ultimate goal. It is to institutionalize power as authority, power as morality, so that all people who used to believe that it was unjust to steal and unjust to murder will, will, will understand and come to accept that actually in some cases it's perfectly fine to steal and murder if you feel that you're a victim or you're a member of an oppressed class. If you're black, then of course you have the right, the obligation to rip off 18 Fendi bags for $65,000 at the Beverly Hills um, uh, shop uh, one mile from my home here in Los Angeles. And if you are a uh, illegal immigrant, uh, you of course have the right to cross into the US uh, sick, bearing drugs and carrying children uh, that you're gonna resell for prostitution because this of course is uh, is your, your uh, non-God, but but liberal God-given right to move about freely and take what you want from a country which has exploited your people for the last 200 years. And if you are a young black man, of course it's fine for you to um, burn a police car and shoot the officer when he pulls you over because your ancestors were discriminated against. But if you're a white man, then of course you can't do any of this, especially if you're a Christian. You know, there is no word right now in the English language that I'm aware of to describe anti-Christian hate or fear or discrimination. There's a word for every other one. There's Islamophobia, there's there's racism, uh, there is um, uh, toxic masculinity. But what do you what do you say when uh, someone starts to um, launch ad hominem attacks against a man because he's white, Christian and heterosexual? Is there a word for that sort of, of hatred and discrimination? It doesn't exist. So we don't have any more values anymore that are shared and universal that come from religious teachings, ultimately. All we have is this kind of slippery, um, impossible to hold and contain relative rules that don't conform to any actual standard. They're all arbitrary and they shift depending on who's in power. That's one of the big problems that we have in our society today. And if we don't get back to a shared sense of mm. core values that apply to everyone equally, then, then we're really doomed because the only person that will succeed and that will benefit from this will be the person that's at the top of the food chain.
But that can't happen if you have open borders and mass immigration and this homogenization of culture. Which is exactly why it's being pushed. Language, borders, culture. That's what Viktor Orban, the president or prime minister, I'm not sure what his title is of Hungary, has been defending against for the last 10 or 12 years, which is why he's, of course, been called out as a Trump-supporting white supremacist, Islamophobic racist, blah, 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 blah. I like him already. Why? Yeah, oh, I, I'd love to have a drink with this guy. He sounds like a great guy. <laughs> My I kind think, of guy. We can oh, meet at Skin. We, we will meet at Skin, and, and we'll have very intellectual <laughs> conversations. I mean, what is he defending? He's defending life. He's saying, we don't want to push abortion in our country. He's defending culture. He's saying, we want to keep our church intact, and we want to protect our borders and our language. We want to keep Hungarian as a real language. We don't want to make it, uh, uh, you know, this international... Um, let's just put 16 languages on our ballot and driver's license. We're going to all be speaking Esperanto. No, forget that. He's saying, screw you, Brussels. We have a language, we have a culture, and we have a border. We actually have a delineated nation state that has a land border, where if you cross over that, that line, you will be sent out because you are not welcome here unless we welcome you. This is our home. It's not a park. This is a private facility called Hungary. Hungary. And we in this country determine who is welcome to come and who must leave. If you violate our laws, you're gone. That is so eminently reasonable and in fact necessary. What do you hear from the United States? What do you hear from the, the largely speaking, all of the European nations? You hear, we do not want to block people from coming in. We will not only allow you to walk in, we will invite you in. We will send you a bus, a phone, an apartment, health insurance, social security, cash, the protection of the state, we will make it easier for you as an illegal alien criminal to enter the United States on foot than a returning American citizen by plane. That is what we promise. And what, what is that leading to? It's leading to a dissolution of the United States. It is leading to an invasion, literally an invasion. I think we now estimate four million illegals have crossed over the border in the United States in the last 18 months since Biden became president. Up to 4 million. Sure. That's, that's larger than many countries. 4 million people that do not share our language, our values. Largely speaking, many of them, well, they're all, they're all criminals because they crossed illegally. Many of them are actually criminals at their core. They're drug smugglers. They are uh, child predators. They are, in the case of this past weekend, three terrorists who walked in with ghillie suits, which are advanced military camouflage uniforms with camouflage underneath. What, what were they doing here? Why are they here? We don't know. Are, are, they, are they from Libya? Are they from Eastern Europe, Azerbaijan? We have no idea. But we're going to welcome them in. We're going to give them a place to live. And we're not going to ask any questions. We're not going to verify their identity. This is insane. This is what's happening. And of course, the larger question that you ask is why? And this gets back to the diabolical. There's something evil. There is a force present that is encouraging certain people, groups, and institutions to do nothing but destroy what is good. That is their only goal, destroy what is good. Take a sledgehammer to the ancient ruins of Palmyra. That is what uh, ISIS did during the Afghan war. They are pure evil. They are possessed by a devilish intent and a devilish purpose. It does not serve anyone's needs or goals. It doesn't gain anyone any money or power. It is pure, unadulterated destruction. I also think that a politically incorrect thing to say is that it's essentially too much liberalism and too many rights. 
oh, that's completely false because is liberalism it? is is no liberal. That that is a a a an incredible lie and a rape of language, which you've been hearing now for the last ten or twenty years. Liberalism is based upon individual rights, not group rights. Ah, in the classical sense, yes. Yes. That's why I'm always very careful when I use the word liberal. I always say historical liberal or democrat liberal Mm. or classical liberal. The the, the word liberal now is being bandied about to basically mean a leftist, meaning a follower of Marxism. Marxism and liberalism have nothing to do with one another. Nothing. There is no case where leftists or Marxists allowed, for example, free expression, free speech, open press. Never. There's not one example in history. Liberalism is founded upon that belief. Democratic rule, the freedom of expression, the ability of people to to um, talk amongst themselves without being arrested or censored or banned. But what are the so-called liberals now? Not only encouraging the modern liberals. Yeah, you want to call it modern liberalism, which is nothing other than leftism. There is no difference between mm. the Marxists of the early 1900s and the so-called liberals, the contemporary modern liberals of today. Right. The only difference is the vehicle with which they 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 express mm. their their dictatorship. Now they're using it through uh, corporations and social media and um, employment pressures, but they're doing the exact same thing that all of the dictators did in the past, and they assign little small groups and scouts and ambassadors to go out and enforce their their petty dictates and rules, uh, just like the um, the brown shirts did, just like uh, the the young Marxists with the armbands did in China, the children that were asked to go inform on their teachers. Every dictatorship has these little minions that they use to go out and control people because there isn't a police force run by the government large enough to actually to do to do that. So we have these little forces and enforcers. We have the social media enforcers. Uh, we have uh, the censors. We have the uh, the nosy neighbors. We have all these people that say that they're liberals, i.e. good, I am moral, but actually all they are are just um, naive, narcissistic, uh, brainwashed, power-hungry, uh, petty, immature little subhumans. And they are, they are going after mm. the people that built the society that allowed us to grow and survive and become what we are today. So I, I'm, I'm very um, passionate about this subject because I think that language, which has always been um, perverse and perverted by the, uh, the left, that's what they're really good at. They have now done the same thing to contemporary language, uh, like taking the word liberal and redefining it uh, in a way that's actually the opposite. Uh, or justice, which is, of course, meant to be the equal application of, of, of the law for all people is now social justice, which is just revenge. There is no justice in social justice. Uh, the word equity sounds really great. Everything is equal. No, equity is basically just stealing from one person and giving it to another. It's, it's theft, right? But this is what liberals or modern liberals have done. They have rebranded what was a beautiful word and all of the beautiful accompanying words that, that um, created its its foundation and supported it uh, and they've just in, reintroduced the the evils of socialism and communism under a new guise it, it's it's interesting though because the, the entire conversation is actually underpinned by the theme of your book which is fear all of these things are rooted in 
fear of, uh, I don't know, the right wing or the white Christian family or um, exclusivity. It's always a fear of these things and we must break apart that fear and make everything this gray mess. Well, I think this is why what I'm writing about is is more than just a psychiatric or a clinical idea. It is that. I do believe that people are suffering from mental illness, addiction, uh, and that they do need to acknowledge it, overcome it, and work to become fearless and unaddicted individuals. But the point that you're making is one that, that I've been trying to make now for quite some time, which is that it's more than just a mental illness. You actually have an obligation to free yourself from fear and to free yourself from this addiction because by remaining fearful, you are contributing to a collective weakness in society, which then allows your family, your community, your city, your state, ultimately your nation, and as America goes, so goes the world, the international community, to collapse. The pandemic of fear has enabled our societies to collapse and to shut down, to atrophy, to devolve, to become weak, to be taken over and infected like a weak tree becomes infected by a parasite. Our societies have become infected by bad ideas, sick, evil ideas, by perhaps even evil itself, if you want to adopt a theological explanation for this. Something has truly taken over our world. And I believe that it's taken over because of the spread and calcification of fear and fear addiction in our souls. That is why this is so important. That is why becoming free from this fear is more than just a mental health obligation. It's a moral imperative. And the last two and a half years have certainly amplified that. I mean, perfectly healthy people on our biohazard that must be feared. You must stand two meters away from them, or you must wear a mask because the fresh air is dangerous. Or, I don't know, the aerostess on the aeroplane that I told you about who was wearing a mask and surgical gloves. And while it's Pythonesque, hilarious, it's also sad. It's both hilarious and sad and and scary. It's, it's all of the bad feelings all mixed mm. together. Uh, it makes you want to throw up like eating a, a rotten pork burrito from South Oaxaca. It's like those experience. girls, those girls that you said uh, were, were idiots. The ones that were passing me by in front of the bakery on my first day back from the Balkans wearing their mm. uh, pump tops and their short skirts, showing their little titties and shaking their asses, walking by, wearing masks on their faces. They were expressing their entire body ready to be seen and taken and had, but they had to cover their mouth and nose because that was the way to be safe and to show their moral superiority over everyone else. We can act as prostitutes, but as long as we put a mask over our mouth, we're wholesome. This is the sort of behavior that you're seeing among a huge swath of the community here in the US, especially young people. I really do think that this problem of conflating and uh, replacing normal, healthy human connection with fear, with antisocial tendencies, with stay away from me, cover your face, I'm going to cover my hands, I'm going to speak to you on Zoom, we're not going to get together, that that is by design because 
the more that you can sever the connection between and among human beings, especially people who are close to one another, the more you keep people apart, the less that they talk to one another, the less that they actually engage in real human experience, and the more their lives and their, their, their experience of their lives becomes then substituted with something that is artificial and that is manufactured. And that comes through their phones, that comes through their computers, that comes through the internet, all of their experiences, all of their values, beliefs, ideas, and views, everything becomes programmed. You cannot program people who are free. You cannot program people who are social. Even in the Soviet Union, even in countries that had that kind of oppressive censorship and dictatorship, the Soviet people largely knew that they were being lied to, and they had underground clubs, and they had writing. They had, as you and, and I both love and adore this movie, The Lives of Others in East Germany, they had people who would write on even manual typewriters hidden under planks and boards in their apartments and smuggle out texts and tracts to be published in West Germany in local papers about freedom, democracy, courage. Those people knew that they were being lied to. They may have been physically confined, but their spirits were not broken. And they were thinking incredibly freely and courageously because they were able to speak to one another, because there was no internet, because they would walk down the street and they'd sit and have coffee. And even if they do it in whispers or in basements, they were still exchanging ideas. They still could see truth. People cannot see truth anymore because their mm. truth has been substituted with anxiety, with fear, with anti-socialism. And that really makes it hard for people to actually start to think back for themselves again. It's so strange, though, because it seems to me that it always horseshoes back to the primal and the simple men that are masculine and women that are feminine and you'll have less fear because there's more confidence. They know who they are. I was just speaking with someone earlier today who is a well thinking, good hearted, but somewhat confused uh, woman who knows in her heart what the archetypes are. And she knows what it feels to be loved and adored. And it knows, she knows what it feels like for her to surrender to a man who cares for her, but who's strong and she loves it. But she also wants to be independent. She wants to be powerful. She wants to argue. And that person, were she to just go back to the basics, just accept what her true human emotional experience has been over the course of her life, she would immediately understand and accept that her role as a woman is to cultivate her femininity. It is to express her emotions, but allow them to be contained and managed to some degree by a man in her life whom she trusts and to be able to follow his lead. And from there, she can achieve her full potential as mm -hmm. a woman. And, and to find a man who is willing to stand up to her and to say, I love you, but you have to shut your mouth right now, you're talking nonsense and a man who is willing to make sacrifices and put himself in physical danger to earn money and to support her and perhaps her children and her family, to go out there into the world and bring back the hunt and have her cook it for him. That's the man that she needs in her life. That's the man that will truly make her feel happy. That's the man who's going to actually allow her to lead the life that she truly wants. But that's not what women and men are looking for right now. That's not what they're expressing. No. The men today are expressing the opposite. The men today 
are saying, I'm going to sit here passively and I'm going to let you talk for as long as you want and never, ever criticize or disagree with anything you say because I want to be supportive. And by the way, I'm not going to work. I'm just going to get some checks from the government. I'm going to um, do as little as possible because I want to stay home and help you clean and cook. And then the woman, she's not going to try to make herself look attractive. She's not going to cultivate her softness. She's not going to uh, learn how to be a complimentary partner in the relationship. She's going to go out there and fight and make money and kick ass and prove that she's right, never back down. All of these qualities that she doesn't really want to do, but she's going to do because it, she thinks that it makes her virtuous and correct. And meanwhile, both sexes are just going home alone and they're saying, why am I so lonely? Why am I watching porn? Why am I crying into my haagen every night? Something is wrong. And they don't understand that it's actually very simple. It's actually that they are, they are living in opposition to the core basic union archetypes of the male and the female, the man and the woman. It really isn't difficult. What's difficult is cutting out all of the noise and the nonsense and the program that we've been taught for the last few decades and get back to basics. I want to read you um, just a short uh, snippet of that email um, that I sent you um, based on the conversation that you and I had, actually. Uh, she said Her name is, uh, well, I won't read her name. She says, listening to the show has me clapping and screaming, yes, yes, exactly that. Why have men allowed these damn hysterical women to drag us into this horrid mess? Where are the men to say, no, honey, now be a dear and go make my dinner? Where are they? All of this righteous agreement is coming from my happy place, uh, which is my kitchen. I never wanted to be anything but a wife and mom. And after 26 years of it, I don't regret dropping out of college to be a stay-at-home wife and mother. Wow. That's quite something, isn't it? I think she is speaking from her heart, from her experience. And she's not a young woman. She's got an adult child, at least one. Yeah. So this is not somebody who's just um, reacting hysterically and emotionally without thought. This is her lived experience. This is her life. And she appears to have been very successful and happy in it by making good choices, by not placing career over family. That's by important. focusing on her home and her husband, which is what's given her the greatest joy and sense of accomplishment, which is the anti-feminist way of living. It is entirely contrary to what feminists are teaching. And yet, listen to the words that she uses. She is delighted. She is happy. She is hoping for the same level of delight and joy and accomplishment for her son. Yeah. But she fears that he may not actually have the opportunity to get that, not because of, of him being degraded and being corrupted, but because she has trained him just like a, mm. a battalion has trained a soldier to go out and battle, to bring the gun and the knife and a cold, cruel sense of reality to the battlefield, to the enemy. And this man is then going to be released to the world to, to, to discover what? that when he walks up to a woman and he gives her good eye contact and he, and he says that she's attractive and he wants to get to know her better, he's gonna get a slap in the face, a drink thrown at him, and then a photo of him published mm. uh, and spread all over the internet and sent to his boss so that he loses his job and he gets ostracized from the community and perhaps he gets arrested. This is the world that he's gonna be thrust into. And she's, she's saddened and dismayed to know that everything she did 
for her and for her family was just and correct and righteous. And it may end up that he winds up failing and not achieving his dreams because of what's happened to society. This is, is profound. And I, I do not ever apologize, although I always take responsibility for it. I never apologize for saying these things because they're true. I don't care if it hurts people's feelings. I don't care if it makes uh, women hysterical or, or, or men defensive. I don't care because it needs to be said. I don't want to grow up. I'm already grown, but I don't want to continue growing up and aging in a society that is moving further and further away from the ability of men and women to attain and achieve happiness, not alone, but together. I don't want to be on my last legs in, in however number of decades and seeing that society that I grew up in just completely gone, withered away, never to return. So I, I am somewhat selfish in saying this mm. because I, I want it for myself, uh, but, but I also at the same time believe that it's true. Mark, what is the opposite of fear? Courage. The opposite of fear, at least irrational fear. I'm, 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 when I say fear, I'm always talking about irrational fear. To be afraid of something that is, is a true threat is, is absolutely rational and it's necessary. Yes. If you have no fear in your life, you, you wind up uh, you know, becoming one of those Darwinian victims. Your gene pool gets taken out. Yeah, you drink, you drink uh, rat poison as a joke. Yeah, there you go. Or you put like this girl did yesterday uh, on on uh, Twitter, um, a loaded gun to your head and pull the trigger. She shot off the the left side of her hair. Fortunately, she didn't actually what cause the bullet to enter her brain. Yeah, she's I don't know how old she was, like what? 12, 14 years old. She's with her four year old <laughs> sister in her apartment. She takes a loaded pistol and she cocks it. She holds it up to the side of her head. Fortunately, she doesn't point it perpendicular to her skull. She sort of holds it against her head with the the barrel pointing towards the ceiling, but slightly at an angle, pulls the trigger and shoots off the left side of her hair. It flies off in the air and she's got like burn marks <laughs> all over the side of her head. <laughs> and, she, and her little sister is saying, what the hell are you doing? And starts screaming and crying. Now, those her parents, story. also her parents, give gun owners a bad name. Apparently, the parents left the gun for her to take and video herself and upload it to the internet. I don't oh, know where they are. Right. Hopefully, they're arrested and in jail. I just saw it yesterday. I, I don't even know what country she's from. because She didn't speak anything. So maybe she's not even American. But this sort of fearlessness is what takes you out. Fear, though, the irrational fear that I'm describing, I, I, I describe really as an inability to think and a an impotence to be able to face danger and take a risk. And the opposite of that is courage, which is to obviously rationally assess the risk. You need to be able to know what you're getting into, but then to feel that rational fear in facing the risk and to act in spite of it, to go out there and put yourself in danger, to know that you can and probably will lose something. That is the only way to move forward in society. If we do not have anyone, anyone who can express that courage, that definition of courage, then we're lost. If we don't have an army that is prepared to lose lives, we will never win a war. Mm. If we don't have a parent who is ready to hear and tolerate and swallow, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, mommy and daddy, from their child for being refused pizza and ice cream, being sent to bed at 8.30 at night without the phone and the video game, if that parent cannot tolerate that sort of injury, 
then that person is not fit to be a parent and will not raise a good child. These are really important sure. basic basic ideas, whether it's parenting or whether it's waging war, that we have completely turned our backs on. We have been told that it's what's most important is our own comfort and our own sense of self-perception, of positive regard, that everything boils down to being liked by others and being seen as good. And that's where virtue signaling, of course, comes from. Yeah. And that is a terrible, terrible way to orient because what that says is we don't have, A, any moral code, and B, we don't have the balls to stand up to criticism and dislike. And if we can't do those things, if we can't stand up on principle, moral principle that is objective, not just subjectively changing every day in the whims of the person in power, and we can't take a hit, we might as well not even go play the game. We might as well just give up and, and just give the toys away right now. Donna says, um, fear is contagious, but Mark is... Is courage contagious? Absolutely, it's contagious. They're both contagious. This is why it's so important to express courage. It doesn't matter if you feel afraid. You have to go and display it because there are other people out there that are thinking about acting courageously. They just need to be pushed in the right direction. Just like people who were thinking about going out and acting fearlessly and then saw 15 other people on their street wearing masks and they went, oh, you know what? I think I better just wear a mask. When you have a tipping point, when you have enough people, it doesn't take 90%, it just takes a small number of people who are out there publicly displaying courage, putting themselves at risk, saying, I am not afraid of losing something, then other people will join you. They might not express that courage as vocally and as actively as you are now. They may just go out and passively support you, but they will eventually start to see and feel how important it is to act courageously and to take greater and greater risks for good, for the good. And that will stem the tide, that will change things. This is why I think courage is, is A, so rare right now because fear has become so widespread and B, why it's so important for us to spread courage rather than fear. The internet has definitely, well, and social media by extension, have definitely been a catalyst to uh, the, the contagion of fear. I completely agree. This is why I tell parents now, do not give your children a smartphone. I mean, for other reasons as well, but that's one of them. If you remove social media in particular, and then secondarily legacy news sources, largely speaking, everything that comes through the phone and the computer uh, that are um, sport, supported, sponsored, and controlled by you know the big three or four big tech companies, and of course, the Democrat Party in the US, which are one in the same, they, they, they're, they're basically just peas in a pod. Uh, if you can do that, then you will open yourself up, you will create a vacuum essentially, to which good solid debate and information, good ideas can then arrive and implant themselves and then grow and then hopefully take over that, that sort of garden of weeds uh, that you were uh, supporting uh, with your social media addiction and following. I think that there, there is a, a big deception at play right now among uh, Westerners, uh, particularly those that think that they're smart and well-educated because they, they listen and read widely. I listen and read nine different news sources. That's why I'm well-informed. Well, no, actually, you're just reading one. You're reading the same one multiplied seven, eight, nine times. Like the guy that goes and applies for a job, and he says, what experience do you have? And he's like, well, uh, I have five years of selling shoes. Uh, five years of experience selling shoes. Yes, five years, sir. Uh, no, actually, you don't. You have 
10 periods of six months of experience selling shoes. You maxed out after month six. After all that, it was just repetition. So if you listen to eight copies of Yahoo News and Apple Podcast uh, of announcements of impending catastrophe by the latest newsreader up in um, Mountain View, well, you're not actually listening and reading to eight or nine or 10 different news sources. You're just listening to the same one eight or nine times throughout the day, which is worse than just listening to one because now you're hearing the same damn thing eight or nine times in one day. And as we all know, the more times you hear a lie, the more you believe it's true. So if you hear it a hundred times, you think, well, it must be true. I've heard it a hundred times from a hundred different sources. You really have to stop that. And that's part of the, the, the book that I just published, Freedom From Fear. One chapter goes into that specifically, drop the dealer. If you're addicted to a drug, stop visiting the man who's selling you the drugs. So if you're addicted to fear, stop going back to the source, which is media. Find other sources, talk to human beings, read books, read magazines, search out sources that didn't lie for the last three years, like the Epic Times, like certain podcasters who are spreading truth, certain AM radio talk show hosts in the United States, at least, where we still have AM radio, which is largely a good mixture of some crazy people, but also some really good, solid speaking, rational truth seekers. Look up sources of information that were shown and proven to be truthful in the last three years. That is such an important point. Forget about right and left. Just look for who said what turned out to be correct. And those that didn't, stop listening to them. Mm. Mark, I know you have to rush off to lunch shortly. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very jealous. Uh, because I, <laughs> because I suspect that uh, your 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 drink will only will only get better from from this point on while mine is coming to an end, um, and also I don't have a I don't have a gentleman's club near me called Skin. I will take you there when you visit Los Angeles. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, I had I had a, I had a um, uh, this lady on my show recently. She said to me, I, I really want to visit South Africa, but I'm petrified of sharks. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, okay, but then don't go into the water. <laughs> she thinks that there's no option except to land in like a seaplane and then swim her way to shore. As far as I remember, the airport was, was actually in an urban environment. It wasn't on an on oil tanker. What's, what's her problem? <laughs> um, where, where, where was she? Did she was born and raised in a landlocked country and never set foot on, a, on an ocean? The UK. Oh my goodness. Well, she really did grow up on an island. What the hell is she afraid of? Wow. <laughs> uh, it could be it could be a joke or the result of propaganda. <laughs> you know what it is? It's propaganda that's being spread throughout the world to discuss and describe and instill fear into people over the epidemic of land sharks. Yes. Yes. And also they're those great are, whites. The, so they're racist. They <laughs> they're great white land sharks. They're so powerful because of their white supremacy that actually they swim onto shore just to go after and eat up all the black people. Great, great white sharks lives matter. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, okay, let, let's. I normally, I normally, um, I normally do a crystal ball, but uh, that we, you, you and I have done that so many times. So I've got a new one now. Yeah. If you can summarize this entire conversation in one paragraph then what would you say? I would say, we must start thinking for ourselves. We must start 
acknowledging that we are largely living in a chronic state of fear addiction and that in doing so, we will be most likely to succeed against a growing, entrenched, and ultimately, I believe, set to victory diabolical force, which has been unleashed on the world ever since March of 2020 and seeks to divide, conquer, and destroy all of humanity, right, left, black, white, rich, or poor, immigrant or native, through the instrument of fear, paranoia, and the destruction of courageous action by human beings. Good enough. Where can I buy your book and follow your work? I have a literary website, which is called Dissident MD, because any opinion that contradicts the narrative is basically equivalent to being a dissident. And it's called dissidentmd.com. And that website has links to purchase my original book from November of 2021, which is called United States of Fear and my current book, Freedom from Fear. And there's also links to my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, and my Substack account, where I publish a six to 800 word essay, uh, more or less every Thursday on what I consider to be a topic of preeminent importance of that day, dissidentmd.com. And if you wanna hear me yap, you can also hear my podcast with Dr. Jeff Barkey, which is called Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics. And you can get that on Apple Podcasts and other podcasting sites by typing in Informed Dissent, or you can go to the main page and get all kinds of other interesting little pictures and quotes and photographs for all the crazy stuff that we've been doing up and down the coast at informeddissentmedia.com. I happen to be a subscriber to your podcast. You are. Well, I am delighted to hear that you are listening and watching to informed dissent yeah i i enjoyed your one with katie hopkins katie hopkins just came into my inbox yesterday because a woman who's organizing a conference in texas uh sent me a video that she played i haven't listened to or watched it yet uh, because i've been kind of busy today but uh, they're good friends and uh, katie hopkins who we had on our show uh, is one of the most delightful sharp incisive uh, feminine anti-feminist that I have ever met. She is a true delight Funny. and inspiration to all women. I wish that all women could use her as a model. I mean, mm. she, the, the humor and and play and sharpness and smartness, all that she displays, which is all anti-feminist, just proves the lie that being a real woman, a real woman means you have to be uh, a bitch. That, mm. that being a woman like her is not weak, it is actually strong. Mark McDonald, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Bye-bye. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.